if your use case is a gizmo or a contraption or a thingamajig, you're in trouble. I have a new metric for product quality. The metric is the mean time to garage sale. Why should I advertise? When should I advertise? I always start with not every company should advertise. From Orion X, this is The Marketing Podcast. Marketing as a function has transformed in significant ways. More technology, more data, more social, more blending of arts and sciences, more integrated with every other function, and ultimately more critical to the organization. Join Shaheen Khan and Doug Garnett as they discuss news and happenings in the world of marketing, from the boardroom to customer programs. Hi, everybody, again, Marketing Podcast with Doug Garnett. How are you, Doug? I'm doing great, Shaheen. How about you? All right. So we were talking before the show and you had a really funny one. So let's start with that. And it came out of a tweet stream. It was a great discussion on Twitter and you were part of it, I know, where Fiona Tribe out of Australia started a discussion kind of asking her question is, what's the difference between gizmos, contraptions, doohickeys, gadgets, and thingamajigs? <laughs> now, personally, I prefer doohickeys over thingamajigs, but I can't tell you why. But what struck me about it, first of all, it's funny. That's what struck me about it is why do we have these names for products? And I know that in my work with tech, for example, I found that consumers for consumer tech are really scared of being sold a gizmo or a gadget. <laughs> and what a gizmo or gadget means to them is it's something that's kind of, it sounds good, but doesn't really work in reality. Uh -huh. So you get a lot of these single point solutions offered to consumers. They're like, oh, you got to get this. And then you go like, what is it? I honestly, I think IoT has that problem. You know, so much IoT advertising has been about changing the color of the lights. Christmas time, two years ago, I think it was, there was one where dad's in Antarctica on an expedition and he's talking on the phone with his daughter and turns on flashing lights. And I'm like, this is, <laughs> what the, I mean, what's he, what am, what's going on? I don't get it. You know, why would you even care? But It's, it's a use case. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, I guess there's the problem. If your use case is a gizmo or a gadget, or a contraption, or a doohickey, or a thingamajig, you're in trouble. Right. So my not funny comment that I did not post, because I didn't think it was, <laughs> was to say, well, everything is a fad. Right. But the thing that reminded me of that thread was the difference between a feature and a product. Mm -hmm. Because I know for some people, those words mean something that does something very useful that you may not need every day, but when you do, it just does that one little thing really well. So I think a gadget, that's like a positive thing to me, not a negative thing, but it's a very small value, not a big thing. Yeah, I would say probably gadgets tend to be those things that solve one problem. Like, you know, in hardware stores, we have these things that back out screws. So if a screw head breaks out, you can back off the screw. And you know what? You don't need them that often when you need them. They're lifesavers. So they're a pretty good gadget. You don't mind that gadget. There's a lot of things that get sold, though, with more hype. Mm. And when they're sold with more hype, especially in the realm of fitness, the TV fitness world back in the day was selling these abdominal torture chambers. No, uh, abdominal exercisers that were of all these really strange makes and, you know, starting with Suzanne Summers and the... Uh, Time Master, yeah, yeah. So since I did work in some of that business, not on those kinds of products, but in TV business quite a bit, I developed a new metric. You know, metrics are important. 
So I have a new metric for product quality. And the metric is the mean time to garage sale. <laughs> I think that's awesome. <laughs> and the lower the mean time to garage sale, the less value your product has. If it's in the garage sale within a month, yeah, yeah, just go home. You know, If it's in the garage sale in six months to a year, eh, okay. But in reality, you want them not to hit the garage sale for two or three years. And fitness equipment, you would see this. You, my wife and I like estate sales and garage sales. You right, go around right. and you walk up and you're like, oh Lord, I saw that on TV last week. Oh. You know, Obviously it didn't last very well. Right. That reminded me of movies that would go to video too quickly. That's right. That's another. In the older days, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I remember that when it was all like, how fast is it in the video store or how right. fast is it on streaming? When, <laughs> streaming started, when Netflix first started, there was like, how fast is it on Netflix? That tells you whether it was a good movie or not. I mean, we're circling what is actually a very serious and important topic here, which is how good is your product? Not good as in its quality, but good in the sense of how much value does it deliver to your customer? Does it deliver enough value to them that they keep it? Or are you selling it on salesmanship and hype? And in right. reality, they're not going to use it. At one point, I knew of a tool product that I'll leave nameless. And the rumor was they had sold 10 or 15 million of them and that only 5% had ever been taken out of the box. Wow. You know, that's a tool where you can sell it with all kinds of promise. And then does it really get used? Does it really matter? Well, that happens in tech a lot when you sign up customers, but they're not actually using the product. That's true. Yeah. Now you had a formulation that was including the value in your progression from features, benefits, et cetera. Tell me about that. Yeah. With my students, I've been talking a lot about how there's features, there's benefits, and then I have to find this term value. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's difficult because you have to figure, you know, what's the difference between a benefit and a value? And what I've been doing is saying, okay, benefits stay close to the features. Mm -hmm. So TV has a 4K screen. The benefit is movies are in high precision, beautiful color. And that's enjoyable to watch that movie on that TV. But when I get to value, I start looking not just at the product, but in a sense with complexity. What we know from complexity is it connects out into other things. And products, in most cases, live in an ecosystem and the value they deliver, they deliver in the ecosystem around them. So sticking with the TV idea, yeah, I may buy a TV not because I want to enjoy my movies in 4K, but I may buy a TV because it's a gathering point for my family. Right. And therefore, the success of the TV depends on the sound system, on the furniture, on how close that is to the kitchen, what kind of lighting there is, and even on family dynamics. So you really are after the kind of value that compels a transaction. Yes. Is mm -hmm. that the, the reason I'm buying this is that. Yeah, that's it. it. Really, it is. It's that sense of what is the ultimate. With one of my classes this year, we were talking about John Deere tractors. I know I bring them through all sorts of weird things they're not familiar with, you know, and John Deere tractors. And I said, okay, so if somebody buys a John Deere tractor in three months, they might say, I love my John Deere tractor because what are they going to say? Hmm. And it was really interesting because they got it right away that it wasn't about, well, because it has a new reverse gear. You know, that's not going to be what they're going to say in three months. In three months, what they'll say is, yeah, you know, I get my work done a bit earlier so I have more time with the family or it's reliable. I'm not having to take it to the shop all the time. Or, you know, they're going to talk about these bigger values, not just feature benefit. Right. I think it's a very critical part of understanding. We talked about it last time on mm -hmm. buyer psychology. And in a previous episode, I was talking about the same thing, feature benefits, 
pain points and buying behavior. And those are all different ways of trying to get at this concept. And you're right, it can go forever. Mm-hmm. So to just stopping it and say, okay, it's really value that's causing you. That's a, that's a good way of shorting it to the ground. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I really have struggled at times. I've been in those discussions where you, they call it laddering up the benefits right. you know, where the benefit is, well, it's got a 4k screen. And at some point it makes your relationship with your spouse better. And at some point it brings you closer to God. Right. And it's like, okay, that's a silly process. So that's where I'm going to try to use this value idea as a complement to benefits. Right. Speaking of laddering up, it's also the five whys. Can I ask mm-hmm. why five times in succession and get an answer? This is very similar to one of my big rules of competitive intelligence, which is ask, so what, repeatedly, right. until the person you're asking gets angry and just blurts out what the real value is. But those are all really part of getting at this kind of an insight that is so critical. They are. And you know, we, the research work I did with this brilliant focus group moderator out of Texas, uh, Carla Roberts, you know, we did really good research and we were able to tap with people those kind of things about what is it that really is important. And it took a considerable amount of work and it took a, a whole research design to make it happen. But it's possible to hear that stuff back from people. You have to know what to listen for. And you have to know how to engage a conversation where people will really start revealing these things that aren't just what you would expect an infomercial testimonial. Right. You know, I always say if if what they tell us is what we expect them to tell us, we haven't learned enough. I need to hear things that surprise me. That's when things get fresh. And so we would kind of design the research around wanting to leave openness to hear surprising things. You know, we should come back to how you design these things because you're absolutely right. How do you gain that insight and not really waste the time that you have with some precious potential source of info? Another topic was advertising. You want people to know about your product, but why should I advertise? When should I advertise? What is your thought about advertising? Well, I always start as an ad guy, especially I've always trained my students with not every company should advertise. And there is no necessity of advertising to be in business. So that when someone comes into an ad agency, the first question should be, why are you here? In doing that, there actually was a thread this morning on Twitter about this too, where I posted that too many people would come in and say, well, I need me some advertising. Hmm. Well, now wait a minute. Why? You know, why do you need it? Because? Because what? Well, I need business. Well, wait a minute. How soon do you need that business? What are you trying to achieve? So whether you should advertise or not depends heavily on what's your business challenge right now. And I spent a lot of my career working with people on what is your business challenge? How would advertising fit that if you were to use advertising? And where does advertising take you to? A lot of times I'd find out that people either came in with that vague idea, I need me some, or they'd come in with specifics like, well, I need to be getting 1,000 new clients in the next Right, month. exactly. <laughs> okay, uh, no, that ain't going to happen either. I even had one company come in and they had too low of a budget. And I just said, look, we could maybe get you started for that money, but it's going to run out of money. And now if it doesn't work, what are you going to do? And if it does work, do you have money to ratchet it up and you know make it produce for you? And I said, really, I think you should spend that money elsewhere, maybe on PR, maybe on some other efforts, because advertising is not the key to all marketing. Yeah. So in agreement with you, what I do is to try to superimpose it on the funnel and say that, okay, if you have a top of the funnel problem, then advertising is a decent method to do it. And if you have a problem, even 
further down the funnel, that can still work if you do a targeted advertising with specific call to action, etc. But really, fine, you want to have a thousand clients a month, great. And let's back our way into what that means. So now that takes you through the funnel and the conversion factor. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to close one out of three prospects, so then that means you need 3,000. So you work your way up. Of course, those conversion factors are always optimistic mm-hmm. that it's not one in three. It's probably more like one in 20. Yep. It's not even close sometimes. So really the shape of the funnel is not just a beautiful triangle, but it's a it's not hyperbolic kind of a mm-hmm. black hole looking thing. Yep. You want so many responses. Mm-hmm. What method gives you what dollar per response? So now you can stack rank these marketing mix options that you have. Mm-hmm. In terms of both dollar per whatever it is you want, let's say dollar per lead, right. but then also the number of leads that it provides. And the quality of leads enters into it, you know, and that's not often discussed too much because you're right. I mean, people were after all the numbers, but there's a quality of lead. If a lead comes in and they're more informed, they're better for you. But what's it take to get a more informed lead? And so up and down the funnel, you have this question about where do you shift money And how do you focus on that? Right. You know, and I spend a lot of time with my clients around what message is going to get people to move at different levels of the funnel. It's simple further down the funnel because you get to a point where people are uh, in the funnel I use to get to this point where people are prepared to buy, but they haven't bought yet. Car dealers always used to have the end of year. We're clearing the 2021s off the lot and those deals would move a lot of people to buy in a very short period of time. People who'd already been through the funnel, but got stuck on that last step. So deals, you can do deals and things like that to get people over the last hurdle. The problem is, as you go up earlier, you have to really understand what messages move people. What do they need to know? How do you get them to credibly believe it and come to say this product would be good for me? You're right on that the message, as well as an offer, are conversion tools. And not everybody sees a message as a conversion tool. Speaking of conversion, actually, I did a story for you that when I worked with Drill Doctor, Drill Bit Sharpener, they had some research from a big national ad agency where they'd gone out and done the usual five-point scale for uh, how likely would you be to buy this product. And now the Drill Doctor is this drill bit sharpener. It sharpens drill bits. There's all sorts of details to that. Well, they'd gone out and done phone calls. In a phone call, you get about a paragraph. And they would read the paragraph and then ask them, how likely would you be to buy from zero to five? Well, they were like a one and a half to two was the data that they got back. So, you know, that that ad agency, I don't know why you're even in business, basically, because the desire for the product was so low. What we did in our advertising that you couldn't do on a phone call is we had long form advertising, a half hour show. We built the reasons, you know, we went through first, you can sharpen drill bits, which is a lot of people didn't know. Then we went through, why do you care? What's the value? What benefits do you get? Why do you care about this? And built that. And in a sense, what we did is with our advertising, we shifted that survey from a one and a half to two to a four and a half to a five. Oh. And they sold three million of them as wow. a result during eight years. But you have to shift and communication can shift even the fundamental desire for the product. Excellent. So I want to come back now to the depth of knowledge that we ah. had with the mm-hmm. previous one. And I love the, the story of yours, by the way. <laughs> well, the, the stories are, of course... Storytelling shows up in marketing everywhere, doesn't it? <laughs> Although we did have that tweet too, that not everything needs to be a story, please. Yes, this is true. <laughs> right. mm-hmm. Because I was in fact experiencing, I was reading something and I just wanted a quick info on something. Yeah. 
And I wasn't going to get it because where I went had to take me through this whole setup for a story. And I need to be out of there in like two minutes, not yeah. 10. <laughs> anyway, so that is the depth of knowledge topic comes from the other tweet we had on the mm -hmm. chauffeur knowledge. Mm -hmm. So take us through that. Well, so the idea is, and I think that I means hopefully I get this story kind of right, which is Max Planck, brilliant physicist, driving around with a chauffeur for a long time around the U.S. giving speeches. At some point, the chauffeur says, how about I give the speech today? And he lets the chauffeur give the speech. And then a question comes up that the chauffeur, of course, can't answer. And he says, well, that's such a simple one. I'll have my chauffeur, Max Planck, <laughs> answer it. You know, kind of a funny little joke. But the idea being, I guess, essentially that, you know, there is this difference in depth between them. And maybe the chauffeur understood actually what Planck had said, but he hadn't worked with it heavily. It's kind of this interesting question about depth. But I don't know, the way that chauffeur knowledge idea gets played out by people is weird. I never feel like anybody quite really gets what's yeah. behind it. What was you, you, were, you have strong feelings on this. What I disliked about that story is that it's simplified as usual. Mm -hmm. Simple answer to a difficult question. Mm -hmm. And the upshot of it was that there are two kinds of knowledge. It's the Max Planck kind of knowledge and this chauffeur kind of knowledge. And one is deep and one is shallow. Mm -hmm. I personally was quite impressed that the chauffeur could carry an entire lecture mm -hmm. that none other than Max Planck used to say. So I was like really impressed with the guy. <laughs> and I think it was really quite nice. And of course, he clearly is witty and yeah. can think on his feet to say, I'm just going to have my chauffeur answer it. So, you know, setting that aside, I thought that it's a terrible way to categorize knowledge because knowledge is not a binary thing. And even if you simplify it, it's not. Like, please don't simplify it. And it's a spectrum. So the better model that I put forward was a video clip from Richard Feynman, another mm -hmm. prominent Nobel Prize winning physicist who had, in an interview, he was asked about some magnets and what goes on at the lower level that makes these things attract each other like this. And instead of just answering it, he asks in a way that is really hard to understand in the beginning. He says, well, what do you want to know? And it almost sounds like that was not a smart question to ask. Mm -hmm. And then the guy says, well, I think it's a perfectly reasonable question to ask. And he says, it is an excellent question to ask, but the answer isn't like a very simple answer. Mm -hmm. It all depends on what do you want to know about the answer? Do you want to go down to the quantum mechanics of it? Or do you just want to know something a little bit superficial that, well, there's a magnetic force and it's a north and a south and they attract each other. Right. And he was saying right. that for some people, that's enough. That's all they want. Mm -hmm. But then you can repeatedly ask, so now it's not five whys, it's like 95 whys, <laughs> that you can keep going and never get to an answer. And that's kind of where the extent of science is right now. Isn't there, in a sense, the question of, so maybe we don't really define what knowledge is very well, right? Because in a sense, if I think about a Max Planck, it's not that he had knowledge like it's a library where you pull things out of your brain and say, well, I know this and I know that and I know this. It was that Max Planck had the instincts developed through experience to connect all kinds of things around the field so that when an unusual question came up, instead of you know looking like data, trying to retrieve it out of his brain, he actually had to figure out the answer by pulling together these remote sources because they provide an answer. But it's not like he's sitting there with the answer baked in. 
And maybe that's some of this difference in knowledge that a really thorough expert has the ability to consider a situation that's entirely fresh and new and comprehend. Definitely. But there are occasions when you just want to know what's the atomic weight of oxygen. It's that and you're done. And that's knowledge. But then you kind of go to the ability to synthesize Mm -hmm. and say, okay, I know now enough to connect these different dots together to come up with new insights. That's another kind of knowledge. And then the other knowledge is how deep can you go in a particular topic? Like I used to advise my staff that when you do a presentation, you should be able to answer three double clicks. People ask you something, you answer it. They do a follow-up, you answer it. They do a follow-up. If you answer that too, you're probably done with that presentation. They're going to love you because you were able to do that. And we had a joint colleague who was just superb at that, Drew, down in San Diego. Oh, yeah. So that's the other aspect of it. Well, it's interesting, as we're talking about this, since I'm working on this book around complexity in business, that, I mean, I started working on it three years ago, and I thought I was pretty on top of things. But over these three years, I'm beginning now to get to a point where I see, oh, my knowledge has really matured. And I don't want to say like I wasn't smart then. It just Yeah, you've been studying for a long time. Yeah, yeah, my ability to see across the field and to look at connections. And I've been on a very aggressive reading kind of thing, both of officially stuff about complexity and stuff that is tangentially related. It's kind of incredible to feel this like, wow, oh, okay, now I see, you know, this is what comprehension of a field requires. Right, right. I guess that's, you know, maybe the other other thing, you know, that oversimplifies things is when people talk about having to do something 10,000 times. That's not knowledge-based work doesn't work that way. It's different. Right. Now, I know craft people who make incredible things, and for them, repetition in physical crafting is part of it. Right, right. I think, you know, somehow I think as humanity, we try to define these simple little gimmicks to understand the world, and they don't work. It's hard. Exactly. Exactly. Good. So, okay. On that note, we're going to conclude this episode. It's a marketing podcast. So I have to ask you to rate and subscribe because it makes us feel good, but allegedly it also helps other people find it. But anyway, it does keep us going. So thanks for being here until next time. Take care. Thanks. That's it for this episode of the marketing podcast. Every episode is posted on orionx.net and shared on social media. Use the comments section or tweet us with any questions or to propose topics. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The Marketing Podcast is a production of Orion X. Thank you for listening.